0: and welcome to episode 81 of the Comfort Monk podcast. Today I spoke with Lori Goldston, a multi-instrumentalist with a focus on cello. She's notably played with acts like Nirvana on their Unplugged record and the tour leading up to it. She's played alongside David Byrne. She's scored films for Lynn Shelton and worked in just numerous mediums, all of which she's done amazing work in. It was uh, great chatting with Lori. She was a pretty gracious guest and went into great detail about the nuances of working in this eclectic world of music that she's put herself into. Um, But it was a great conversation. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Thanks for hanging out. This is episode 81 of the Comfort Monk Podcast with Lori Goldstein. How's it going?
1: Good. How's it going?
0: It's going great. I appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, how's it going in Seattle right now?
1: It's good. Yeah. Nice spring day. Might turn out sunny. Nice. Where are you?
0: We are in Columbia, South Carolina, so it's already getting pretty freaking hot around here, to be honest. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, we're yeah. not having that problem quite yet. Yeah.
0: Well, Good. Well, I, you know, I I got so much that I could pick your brain about Lori. Uh, I mean, I feel like you you've done a little bit of everything and uh, just had a really interesting career. But if it's all right with you, I'd like to go way way back and uh, start by just asking you, uh, you know, kind of about your early days getting into music. Was uh, was cello your first instrument?
1: Guitar was my first instrument. Interesting. Yeah. Oh.
0: And how long before uh or were you hitting the guitar before you kind of transitioned into cello?
1: I played it for a few years and I played both really equally. Um like I was I started on guitar when I was seven. Ah. And uh like I just got really interested in it, and my my parents weren't musicians or like I wasn't really around any musicians, but they were nice about it. And they were just like, I don't know, I guess we get her lessons. Like, you know, like she doesn't put it down. I, what do we do? You know? So, and then I, and then in public school, I started on cello. So it was a few years later, like uh, I was 11, I think, or 11 or 12 or something.
0: But do you remember uh, there was anything in particular that inspired you to get into guitar was there some music that you remember being like really early turning you on to
1: it was just around that was that like there was just a guitar in the house because my brother had taken my brother is seven years older than me and he had taken guitar lessons and then stopped mm. and uh actually there was another guitar around too but the I the that one was smaller because he'd been a kid so and then I just like asked about it one day. And, like, whatever happened to that guitar? And then I just kept playing it. So then they, my parents, you know, yeah, just figured I should get lessons, I guess.
0: Yeah, it never hurts having big siblings around. My brothers are like 10 and 11 years older than me. So I kind of picked up instruments similarly just laying around.
1: So Did do you, you remember? Austin, were your were they way into music? Like was that big influence? Um, in your taste? My
0: oldest brother, definitely. He was a bass player, and uh, you know, he, so he left the house to go to college when I was seven. Right. Uh, yeah. But I remember uh, going and visiting him in college, and he'd be having house shows and letting me oh, draw wow. the liner notes to his albums and stuff. So
1: wow, yeah, right. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely. Lucky.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it definitely kind of jump-started things for me. Um, but yeah, so, you, you know, I know you said you picked up cello mostly through school. Was it like, did it feel at all chore-like at first, or do you feel like it quickly became something that you're actually motivated to do on your own?
1: Yeah, I was motivated, yeah. I was never, I don't remember it being a chore, yeah.
0: That's good. I feel like sometimes people get, like, put in their hands, and it just kind of it feels like another... uh academic thing as opposed to like a passion which is
1: yeah right yeah no nobody I mean there wasn't really any expectation for me to play music at all you know it wasn't like that kind of household where you're you know like you're expected to take piano lessons or something like that right so that and was uh, like a kind of clean slate for it in a way yeah there was no baggage
0: yeah I think that's that's probably the preferred way I feel like it'd be hard to transition out of that if you got stuck in it in that kind of mindset.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is. It's hard to get out of that, I think. Yeah.
0: When you were when you were in, you know, those uh high school days or anything, were you um were you ever kind of meeting up with other people and playing around or were you stick, sticking mostly with the school band?
1: Yeah, mostly I was doing school stuff a little bit outside. More like if I did stuff outside of that, it was probably more like chamber music kind of stuff. Okay. It wasn't really like I grew up on Long Island, and there weren't really great places to play out. Like there wasn't really that much. In general, there it felt like there wasn't a lot of stuff for teenagers to do. Outside, like when I moved to Seattle, everybody had been going to all ages shows all over the place, you know. And house has been happening here forever. And I didn't grow up around anything like that. Like if you wanted to go hear music, you could, you know, you there would, you there'd be things here and there, but mostly you just had to go into New York. I was I grew up outside New York City, so we would just take the train and go to shows or go, you know. I would go. I mean, I all I've always been interested in all kinds of stuff. So in high school, I would like go to the opera or with different stuff, you know, but also, I mean, sometimes also like rock shows or you could hear, you know, whatever. It's New York. So you could hear a lot of really famous people or whatever, like you yeah. know, or you know, like yeah, they did a lot of that stuff. But yeah, there weren't really places for band for like kids, bands to play. So I did so a lot of stuff was through, but I kept really busy. At school, and I was lucky that I had, you know, I was in a public school that had really good music, like it had, like the, uh, the, the depa- the music department there had been run for, by the same guy for a long time. It was a really cool guy. And so there was a lot going on at the school and then we would get kind of hired out because I just happened to be also in a good, um, kind of double good situation it was sort of like a good year in a good school so there were a bunch of people who were you know became professional musicians who Mm -hmm. I was playing with there so we would get hired out to play for like you know community theater pit orchestras and church and stuff like that and so I had a lot going on but it wasn't like very you know particularly youthful activity it was all just what was happening in Long Island in that part of Long Island at that time it well, always makes sense. Even, even at the time it seemed weird to me like we would just go to like a schoolyard and drink or something because it was like there was kind of nothing else to do like I don't know what they think we, like there wasn't any t- infrastructure for teenagers to like go do something you know, hang out together and just do something like productive in the evening. I don't I was always like, what is it like are we just supposed to sit at home or what is <laughs> what's the plan here? You know?
0: <laughs> but I feel like uh that lack of things to do uh often contributes to like people like yourself who just kind of hone their craft, you know, outside of the you know the yeah, shenanigans with true. your friends.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, but certainly my life would have been different if there were, like, bands and places for bands to play. I'm sure I would be more of a guitar player now, probably.
0: Yeah, but, you know. But,
1: I, but yeah, through high school, I played guitar and cello, like, really with equal, you know, seriousness. And then kind of just shifted to cello more, kind of <clears throat> when I, after high school.
0: But sounds like even in your high school years, you're uh... – your musical outlets were pretty eclectic, you know, it seems like over time you've done a lot of things where it's composition work or working, you know, yeah.
1: with,
0: alongside plays. And it seems like you kind of started doing that early on, very, very un Yeah. Un-pigeon-holed. Totally.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. I always was really interested in a lot of different kinds of music and like really, yeah. Uh, just kind of on fire with that. And so, yeah, I would go to the library and get, old records out and stuff and really studied up. I did also when I was also in high school, I did I took some lessons at this kind of folk music school that mm-hmm. was uh sort of on its last legs, but it been it had been a real hopping place earlier, kind of famous place. And so um yeah, so I was really interested in and they and those guys were really tied in. Actually, the person who was running that school had done, had like gotten a Fulbright and and done a compilation for Folkways Records. So they were really, they were really tied in with Folkways Records. And like, it was tiny. There was hardly anybody in this school, but like people would come through like, uh, you know, Pete Seeger was doing a show and he came by because his friends were teaching there and. Gene Ritchie did a, like a talk or whatever, you know, like even though, but I mean, it was like under 50 people in the school, probably way less than 50 people in the school, but it had this kind of uh, it had, had this reputation, it had this sort of recent history that was still like really it's super in the mix of the sort of tail end of the New York folk revival things. So. Thinking- so, so that anyway, so that got me really interested in folkways records and the library had like the library by my house had the like uh that would have been sort of like the flagship library of that county when it was made in like the early 60s or something and they had the whole folkways catalog from that time so that was like a, a huge thing for me. yeah just kind of like going listening to all these crazy old scratchy records yeah. from there
0: it seems like you could have uh, could have easily been uh, pulled in one direction or another, like become you know become a folky or become this or that. But somehow it seems like you've uh, resisted that over the years and just kind of let yeah. yourself adapt.
1: Yeah, it's just not in my nature. I'm just really interested in all kinds of stuff, and I like to be learning all the time. So I like to you know, so I'm always interested in like something. I don't understand like trying to get involved with something I don't really understand.
0: Yeah. Keep it exciting.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the fun part. I don't know for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I feel like people get uh, stuck in a rut, but if you, if you keep yourself open to all these different, you know, different types of expression, you're going to at least, you know, not get burnt out quite as easily. It seems like.
1: Yeah, totally. No, no, I'm not the slightest bit burnt out. Yeah. I mean, it's like the opposite. And. That's awesome. uh, yeah, it's cool. I know. It's really lucky. I feel really lucky. And um I just always want to hear something new. Like I'm really excited if I am like surprised or confused or something. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good feeling. It gives you like a, a challenge in a in a fun yeah. way, you know. Totally. And you, you went to music school as well, right?
1: I went to Bennington college for two years. So, I mean, it's good. It's a good school for me. It's like a liberal arts school, but it, it's got really good musicals. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like that that kind of those years shaped your musical direction in, in any way oh, in particular? Yeah,
1: Totally. Oh yeah. In a really big way. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of by accident. Cause I didn't really know a ton about the music. I kind of knew about like the sort of philosophy general vibe of the school but i didn't know i didn't really like look into i didn't really know how to look for a music school so i didn't like talk to the individual professors or stuff that i would do now like with in retrospect so i just kind of landed there and then it had this amazing music faculty that was like there were but there were yeah great um Instrumental teachers and um, the and really good composition teachers who were also good improvisers and had really done a lot like out out in the world like that was the one one thing I knew about it was that it had to do more with like very practical dynamic like hands on learning you know like that was sort of the philosophy of the school as opposed to just being sort of strictly academic. So yeah, it made and at that time especially it made for really good teachers. Like there were a lot of teachers there that didn't uh have advanced degrees or anything, but they had just they they just worked, you know, they had just been like working at this really high level. And I feel like it's not even like you don't run across that so much anymore. I don't think they would I don't know that they would get hired now. And But it was really, it was, yeah, kind of amazing and very helpful, you know, in terms of being around people who had just like figured out how to make, put a life together as a working musician, you know, but also made for really interesting people. So then they also had, um, uh, they had a music division and Black music division, which was run by Bill Dixon and very improvisation focused so and that like I didn't really have any didn't have too much exposure to that outside of jazz but uh it was like totally focused on sort of like free improvisation and free jazz and that kind of thing and so that was just like totally a revelation to me it
0: It seemed like that that improv has like absolutely carried over into your current work and just years past. College.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that was really like that was so that time it was I it was only there two years and I then I dropped out. I was just interested in, I don't know, I just wanted to get out and do stuff. But it was yeah, very important. And it took a lot of um took a lot of classes with Milford Graves who was there. And uh yeah, that work has really, really kept with me and then it was nice too like it also had was suited me well because the um it was like not a very sort of didactic way of teaching music it was just like just go do it you know like you go to the you know music like composition 101 class and they're just like okay great yeah come back with a composition it's not like you have to like you know, harmonize Bach chorales for a year before you're allowed to write, or something. It's not that kind of approach.
0: Yeah, not not super rigid in that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And where where is this college at again?
1: In Vermont.
0: Vermont. Okay. Yeah. So that that's kind of far from from home.
1: Oh well, yeah, not that far. I mean, four hours or something. Oh, really?
0: I guess that's closer yeah. than I realized. Yeah, yeah my yeah, geography is not Vermont. What, yes. what I Since thought it was. Southern
1: Vermont. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's close. Yeah. I mean, New, York, New York's right next to New England, more or less. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so how long were you, you said you, you dropped out of there after a couple of years? Did you hang out in Vermont for a little while after that, or was it?
1: I, I uh, was in Boston, and then I was in Vermont, and then I came to Seattle. So,
0: yeah.
1: Okay. Because like, it's a couple more years on the East Coast, and then... I wandered we, out Seattle.
0: So when you first got to Seattle, did you pretty much jump into music right away, or did you? uh Was there an adjustment period?
1: No, I mean, it, yeah, I was just playing with people or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've never re- really not played. Yeah. What well,
0: What was the the kind of first project? Was it was Black Cat Orchestra? One of the like earlier things you started doing when you got to Seattle?
1: No, I was doing stuff before that. Like I was in. I was doing a bunch of improvising and in in some bands here and there and sitting in with bands. and uh I played in this really noisy loud band, the Nordstroms for a little bit. and then <laughs> and then, um uh, I was playing some early music with folks like sort of renaissance medieval renaissance music and but i was kind of just drifting around i was doing a lot of stuff with dancers and i was also working as a dance class accompanist which i did also at at bennington and um uh i'm yeah i'm trying to think of what i was doing but I was playing pretty steadily. I wasn't playing really for work at all at that point, but I was, I mean, a little bit here and there, but uh, that, yeah. And then I started, and then I got, and then started doing Black Caracas because I was doing theater stuff. I was working like pretty closely with uh, this theater company. And we would put a little band together for a show That we started doing music, uh, yeah, we did this, first did this, um, this uh, um, kind of Dadaist play by Tristan Zara, and then we put a little band together for that, and then sort of did a little bit bigger show, and put a bigger band together for that, and that turned into Black Cat Orchestra. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, how how big of a, a group was Black Cat around that time?
1: Well, it kind of expanded and contracted. I think it was usually somewhere between like six and nine people.
0: It's a lot of people to wrangle.
1: I know it was a lot of people to wrangle. Yeah, I think it was only nine briefly, but I think that was the high, the high count.
0: Yeah, that's awesome though. Ambitious.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. It's I guess for an orchestra it's small. Oh so, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But yeah. So <laughs> trying to live up to the grandeur of the name.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess you're that makes sense. Uh well that's cool. um so you said you were kind of started doing some plays and things like that with the black cat orchestra. Were y'all doing like club shows and stuff? Were you mixing? Yeah, it yeah. Up and... That
1: was yeah, sort of like, once it turned into black cat orchestra, it was mostly like club shows and you know, we'd get hired to play for like museum openings or whatever, sometimes, or that kind of thing. But yeah, mostly it was clubs, and we had a monthly gig for many years, for several years, and um, played a lot of weddings and that kind of thing.
0: So when you were playing club shows, was it like a mixed genre bills, or were you uh, playing yeah, with other yeah, kind mixed of orchestra? Genre
1: bills. No, well, sometimes we'd play with like, you know, plasma band or balkan band or something like that but often it was yeah mixed bills and yeah that happens i mean I don't know, seattle's good for that i think in general there's often very musically diverse bills here it's just kind of, kind of moved a little bit away from that more recently but generally that's that's pretty normal here which i look you know for me that's perfect i like a lot of i like a lot of range so
0: yeah absolutely and hearing that you you know you said you played in that that noisier group uh early on and whatnot i feel like there's especially in i mean all over but in Colombia in particular there's like a it's kind of like a deep history there's almost always one band rock band in town that has a cello in the mix and i feel like it's a it's just an interesting like staple of the scene and i'm sure you've seen a lot of it too um and I feel like one thing that's, you know, you always notice in these rock clubs with, with cello is that it's definitely, can be a battle sometimes to find uh sound people who can mix that properly. Uh, Did you, did you battle with that a lot?
1: Oh yeah, no, it's yeah. I, you know, yeah, I just started, I just always go through an amp and then have them like the amp and that sort of takes care of their, that cuts out some discretion, you know, on the part of the, of the sound person, because yeah, most sound people I don't think have any idea about what a cello sounds like. Yeah. I think normally they just try to make it sound like a lead guitar or something, and that's the end of it, you know. Well, and yeah. if you're just
0: close miking it against, you know, a Marshall half stack or whatever large,
1: yeah, yeah there's no wild- way, yeah. yeah, yeah, you just have to, yeah, you just have to pay some money for a good pickup i mean it's just terrible like everything's just it's like having a boat or something like everything's expensive you know (laughs) you you know what i mean like if if, uh, for cello so but you just have to lay out some money for a really good pickup and um and cut out the variables you know so yeah i would never under. it and i mean maybe if i like i really really knew the sound person or something but other than that a lot of people just run direct into the Oh it, yeah, that's it, like
0: nine it, times out of ten. And then you yeah, just get lost. It, you can't hear it at all half the time.
1: Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. It's real. And it just sounds so bad normally. Yeah. And as
0: a performer, yeah. I imagine it can be if you do that, be a nightmare, not being able to hear yourself trying to play along.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Cause also if you have an amp, then it's your monitor also. Yep. Exactly. Time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always that's always what I do. And it's nice. And then yeah, then you sort of get into the like money you know, black hole of amplifiers and stuff like that. But Yeah, but. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's pretty fun. I was really not a gearhead at all for years and just had the same amp and it was really good. And then I just got sucked in. I mean, not like I have a ton of gear, but I have yeah. you know, a bunch of amps and they're just, also they're just around, you know, like Seattle's really a rock town and there's just a lot of good, gear floating around and somebody's you know selling it cheap because they're going on a trip or whatever and yeah yeah
0: well it's worth it if it can help you feel like in charge of your own uh, quality control
1: no no nice and I mean really you know um, I think also for years I thought about it like like I'm like I have this amp and I'm just trying to make it sound louder. I just want the cello to sound louder. And then at some point I realized the amps and another instrument, like you have to deal with it like another instrument. And so that was really helpful. And um you then you get on this sort of the quest that the guitars are on for you know, getting a good tone and sort of like shaping the tone on its own turn. yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then also you get into other sort of parameters that don't exist in uh, classical music, which was um, really exciting for me to figure out about sort of like you get a lot of all these Cambrel options and there's sort of like this um very emotional expressive possibility just from the tone you know from sort of shaping the tone and um sort of like feel and responsiveness and feedback you know all that stuff so kind yeah. of with like all these other dimensions that are that you have to learn about that you just don't exist. It's like in classical music, you know, sort of classical pedagogy. It's sort of like this is how it's supposed to sound. And if it doesn't sound like that, it's wrong, you know. And so then you get into sort of the whole realm of playing with amplifiers and, you know, or electronic music, which I actually don't really know that much about. But then you're also like in this other, this whole other dimension of. Um, messing around with the timbre,
0: you know, and, and speaking of kind of getting into the nuances of just all the subtleties you can get into, tone wise and otherwise, uh, an artist, and you know, cellist that seemed to have spent a lot of time with that was uh, Arthur Russell. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you ever spent much time with his catalog. And you know,
1: yeah, sure, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. He um Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting with, like, when he was doing that stuff, there were very few people amplifying the cello. I mean, it's kind of new. It's kind of pretty newish thing that it's at all normal. And so, like, when I was first coming up and, you know, I was playing, like, jazz guitar, and I was sort of trying to, like, I felt like the way I learned guitar and the way I learned cello were so different and it felt just a little crazy making to me like I wanted to fuse them. And um, so in high school, I started looking around a little bit about amplification and there was almost, there were almost no options. And so everybody kind of had the same setup really. Like also, I remember playing some stuff that from the eighties, I think, or maybe nineties, I think it was eighties that Deirdre Murray was on and everybody, I can recognize the gear that they have because it was just like, there was nothing else available. There's this one pickup that they mostly made for bass the Underwood and then everybody used a polytone and dry no effects, no reverb and it's really nice sound actually. I got really excited, you know, cause I've been mm-hmm. through tube amps forever and stuff. And then I was just like listening to what I was listening to that, uh, to the stuff that Deidre Murray was on that my friend um, Greg Cavill was doing some, um, we were playing some, uh, I think it was Henry Threadgill charts that he had transcribed and I, yeah, got really, I still am tempted, even though I have a bunch of amplifiers already tempted to get one of those little polytone amps that they used. And it was like, that sounds great. Just solid state, just totally dry, just right up against the speaker. It's actually really lovely.
0: Yeah.
1: But I mean, he would, I think he would run his stuff through other stuff, but in but that was that was just really unusual. Arthur Russell would, to come back to Arthur Russell, he would run things um, through pedals and stuff. But I mean, almost almost nobody was doing that at the time. Like it was very hard to just even find somebody to listen to or get any information or anything about yeah. playing a cello when I was first first doing it. So it's been nice to see it become more common.
0: Well, I think one of the things that uh, that made me think of Arthur Russell in and, and chatting with you is just that, you know, he has records like World of Echo where he's manipulating it so extensively, um, but then he's got, you know, work where you know, those recordings have kind of surfaced where he was playing alongside Talking Heads in a more traditional, I mean, with a rock context, but, you know, yeah. less manipulated. Um, yeah,
1: right, right,
0: right. And uh, just similarly, it seemed like he... You know his catalog is just incredibly eclectic, so uh, sort of seemed like reminded me of your work in the sense that this was a uh, you know hard to peg where he was going to go musically.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know I discovered him relatively late in life. I didn't, right? he, so he he wasn't like a in big influence or anything right. like that. Although, I mean, he's you know he's like of a. Like his generation, you know, I grew up outside of New York, and sort of like the the um the realm that he functioned in, and sort of the frame of mind was certainly a big influence. Like those that the you know those were like the you know cool grown up working artists. When I you know generally that that world that he was in was really um had a sort of a big like psychic influence over me as a kid you know right yeah yeah
0: maybe maybe not the uh the work itself but just the uh the yeah, that, you know, that
1: general realm that he was in yep. yeah, that was like the the point everybody was aiming at also yeah it was like such a sort of a golden time and absolutely yeah, I wasn't really in the middle of things, but I was, you know, aware, definitely aware of what was going on. And certainly at when I was at Bennington and it was like very arty school and everybody was like, you know, laser focused on, you know, Meredith Monk and Laurie Anderson and Talking Heads and like, that was who would, those guys were it.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it came full circle. You, you uh, spent some time working with, with David Barron, right? In some yeah, yeah, a
1: couple of times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, both, yeah, with the Black code Orchestra thing and with uh, my friend uh, Jarek's uh, stuff in New York, yeah. So that was great, yeah. No, yeah, really a, th- a thrill, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It, it's
0: definitely a small world moment if you, uh, you know, if that yeah. wasn't even necessarily something that you were super tuned into and then it just kind of ends up being in your orbit just because yeah, of that. Yeah,
1: totally, yeah, right, it just makes sense, right. Yeah, it's cool, yeah.
0: Well, um, I know you mentioned that you had worked with Chris on that uh, that play early on. I mean, is that was that sort of the natural transition for him uh, bringing you in to work on the unplugged sessions and all that?
1: Oh, then I didn't work on a play with him. That was oh, okay. um, no, no. That was uh, that was sort of a friend of a friend, and um, he had. Uh, he had, I think, contributed some money to this kind of public art project that this gal Baloo's brother did um, that ha- that sort of was about the war in the Balkans. Hmm. And that involved a lot of cellists. She had people come and play cello. Uh, and it was sort of a... Um, referencing i might i think i have the guy's photo let me look hang on a second we have yeah photo. take it time. since we're up here in my attic all right i found it yeah well it was on the wall so this is uh Smolovic, smolovich i should Remember his name because, um, and it, it the photo stated sixth of September, uh, nineteen. Oh, wow. So, um, he was in, um, I probably Zagreb, and, um, there were, um, there was a bot, ba- they, there was a bombing out of a, a line of people waiting for bread at the bakery. And a lot of people were killed. I believe it was 12 people were killed. And he went and he was a he's a cellist with the symphony there. And he went to the bombed bakery and played every day for 12 days, one day for each of the people who was killed waiting in line. So, um, Belize's brother, um, who I actually knew cause I worked for her chimney sweep business for a little while for just a few days, but, um, but she all, she's mainly a public art person and she did an event where she had people play, had a cellist come and play, um, in different parts of the city to sort of bring awareness to um, that event. And I think there was an installation also in a window about it. And um, so anyway, once, so then when uh, Nirvana was looking for cellist, Chris knew her from this uh, connection because he had, yeah, he had sort of, I think, Donated some money for this project because he had family in Croatia. It was very his family was very affected by the war. So, um, yeah. So she recommended me. I mean, I and then I was the person who could improvise and uh, kind of knows like guitarist language. You know, like you can tell me a chord or whatever, right. and I don't need charts written out for me. So. Um, which again was really unusual. Like it was really hard to find a, you know, Bode Street, Bode string players like that. At the time, like it's really opened up a lot. Like it didn't used to be there would be cellists and bands much. It happened occasionally, but it was rare. So. Yeah. So I, it, I got the gig for that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Was that unplugged uh, session? Was that the first kind of time playing live with them?
1: No, I toured with them for months before that.
0: Oh, okay. I thought the touring came afterwards. So no. that's that's nice. At least you were going into that uh sort of slightly more high pressure televised thing with some uh
1: Yeah, some I think that was the idea, I think was to set it up after the tour so the band would be super warmed up and
0: yeah. Yeah, that that's that's great. I'm sure that made a uh, felt like a good confidence boost to just have that uh mileage oh. under your belt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right, yeah yeah right yeah yeah because for me i was just playing in you know really small clubs and stuff before so it was a big adjustment it was like pretty yeah, know it's pretty mind-blowing adjustment for a little bit there.
0: and where uh where did that tour take you was it in the states or was it
1: yeah it was in the states and into canada a little bit yeah a few okay. shows in canada
0: i'm assuming those were like pretty large places compared to the uh yeah, well, I, I can't really get a grasp of how big the the venue was for the Unplugged show, but it certainly has a more intimate. Oh period. yeah, it
1: was pretty small. Yeah, it was just in a you know a sound stage kind of place, but it was yeah there were maybe, you know, a couple hundred people or something at the most. Yeah, it was pretty small. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's, that had to be an interesting time. I feel like uh you know wrangling. You know, I feel like when you're touring with an act playing at, at venues of the size that they were, you know, there's probably new. Um, sonic things to consider much different acoustic situation than uh than the rock clubs you know
1: yeah sure yeah yeah i mean it's sort of yeah you sort of just have to really collaborate with the sound people at that point it's kind of their kind of their deal yeah yeah but it was you know yeah i mean it was yeah it was nice it feels a little you know, it feels kind of constrained. I mean, it feels like you sort of have to stay in the same template and you have all these people, you, can, you know, it has to be the same song order every day and people want to hear it like on the record or whatever and it's yeah. a little constrained. So I saw, I remember on that tour watching somebody, when we were in Montreal, somebody gave us a video that we watched on the bus of like the last time they played in Montreal when it had been for like one or two hundred people or something and It looked a lot more fun to me, to be honest. It just was really loose and anything could happen. And there's, you know, there's, yeah, it's you just can't, it's not, there's only like a set number of things that can happen in a big, you know, stadium kind of show.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's got to be pros and cons to that kind of growth without question. Uh, Do you remember, were there any um, opening acts on that tour that stood out to you that you enjoyed playing with?
1: oh there were a lot of oh yeah no it was amazing yeah oh it's great yeah uh yeah who opened like um the breeders um mud honey half japanese uh um shonen dive uh come yeah no it was great i mean it was amazing it was real. that was the, yeah, that was like, the, yeah, kind of the best part of that tour was awesome. I, I mean, got to know a lot of people and then also uh, just got to watch them, like really study them, you know, like side of stage, you know, every night. Yeah. That was really, yeah. because they got, I mean, they got, they could get anybody they wanted to open. So it was um, people, that they liked and they liked their music. yeah. Uh, so it was, it was terrific. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I suppose you sort of got in the mix at a very, uh, very highly visible point in their career. You know, the, I mean, it had to have been like essentially peak notoriety.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's cool that you, uh, that, you know, you didn't bat an eye at it and you seem like you, uh, handled it like a pro got in there and, Made it sound great.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Made it made it work. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah, it was nice. No, it felt really good. And
0: no, because it, it could easily be an intimidating gig, just the stature of it. But I feel like uh, you know, your your performance, you know, just was in no way seemingly phased by the uh by the intensity of the moment.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I was pretty broken in by then. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, was pretty well broken in. And um, yeah, I'm not, um, I'm like not a um, celebrity admirer at all.
0: No, I mean, I, I'm you don't strike a
1: superpower. Me. Like, I really don't, I actually am sort of, I sort of dislike fame So it sort of helps me. It keep, kind of takes the pressure off in a way that it yeah. like desire to be. You know, I find it a little distasteful. So that part of it, you know, I like the music and I like all the people and the situation or whatever. But like the the fame part of it's like the least interesting part to yeah. me. So it takes a lot of pressure off.
0: And to me, I think it would be uh the part that would be a little unnerving or that could potentially be, would be less the, uh, you know, the being adjacent to these, uh, you know, very, I guess for lack of a better word, famous figures more than the, uh, just the, uh, all eyes on the band and on yourself and on it being like, you know, as opposed to something that's a little bit more DIY and, uh, you know, yeah, kind of totally. underground.
1: yeah. yeah absolutely. But I think I was just also like because I didn't like the attention part of it that I sort of could focus more on um, people like there was more focus on the people, the main the main band members. Than me, like I was a little bit like, oh, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's, not, oh, it's not Kurt, which I was really happy about. Like, I was right. really happy, like, I do not, you know, envy that in the slightest. It actually seems terrible to me, like, really, like, well, I mean, obviously, yeah, it didn't work out for Kurt. Like, it didn't make mm-hmm. him happy, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it just seems like so, ter- like, to get that kind of attention just seems terrible.
0: Yeah, I feel like yeah. you know. It's
1: funny that I, it's a little ironic. I ended up in that situation, but it's a little bit of a superpower, I think, to just not be phased by. It.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, it, you came there to to play, not to.
1: Yeah.
0: Not to be like performative or be a you know be a part of the the swirling chaos of uh, yeah yeah
1: yeah.
0: You know, just that. I mean, it's just hard to understate how large the group was at that time and it's it could be a distraction from the from the performance on the musical side if you're constantly having to deal with that. So I, yeah, I'm glad that you were able to kind of stay where you wanted to be and just be uh a-
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I just sort of dipped in and out of that world like I've never been in that you know, never really had any desire to be in that situation again. I just kind of went back to you know I came home and just went back to doing whatever weird stuff. I was doing yeah. yeah And it was never you know a couple times I got asked to do things but I was like I have you know working on a puppet show so I can't go on tour <laughs> or whatever because also those kind of shows like if you uh oh those kind of tours you they really want you to set aside like two years of your life which I just was never interested in putting my own work aside for two years and-
0: and like you said, I mean, it sounds like you like work that's a little bit more uh, malleable and not quite, kind of constrained to the set list and, uh, you know, yeah. kind of repetition that can come with a rock tour. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. The, I mean, yeah, the idea of playing the same set for two years is like totally unappealing to me. Well, I mean, yeah. however good the set is, yeah. but
0: Yeah. And I feel like, uh, you know, it, it, I feel like it's always charming when people can... Have these high profile gigs, but don't necessarily hold it in higher esteem than the uh, than the passionate, less uh, visible projects, you know, I mean, it kind of a little bit of an all art, maybe not all art created equal, but, you know, uh, not at least not have it be defined by public opinion, which I think is important.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I just have a, like a very, you know, kind of anti-authoritarian nature. So I just don't really, uh, you know, like if somebody makes some pronouncement that something's good or whatever, I don't really buy into, you know what I mean? Like, who are you, you know? So, yeah.
0: And, you know, I, I would argue that at the same time, and I'm sure you would agree, like Nirvana is certainly, uh. Not inaccurately praised, uh, but I feel like oh, it's yeah, it, it's yeah. important that you don't, uh, or it's just it's endearing that you don't uh, necessarily like that if, uh, something else, like the gigs that you said you passed on, so that you could do your puppet show and stuff. Like they might have been lucrative or gotten you more. Yeah. yeah, like there's <laughs> just things that that just makes it seem a little more pure. Sorry, my 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 French bulldog's barking at uh, somebody walking by the house. He was being pretty good for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> See if I can get him to chill out. Dio, shh. Oh, he's going for it.
1: <laughs> he's getting bored.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he's normally he's laying beside me and snoring the whole time. So yeah. he's uh doing a little better this time. But uh but yeah, um, I guess you know I won't keep you too much longer, but I would love to hear about uh what you've been up to lately and uh you know, I, I saw that you had worked with Lynn Shelton in the past. I'm a big fan of her work. Um, oh, I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about how that came to be.
1: Yeah, Lynn, uh, I was introduced to from a friend of a friend and years ago, probably 20 years ago. And, um, yeah, maybe a little more even. And she had made this... Um, She had moved from New York not that long before and had made this um, kind of autobiographical experimental documentary and a short film. And uh, so a friend introduced us to recommend me to score it. And uh, yeah, then we became friends and, uh, she at the time was really interested in becoming a doula and so she um acted as a doula when my son was born although I didn't need her actual like full doula services cuz it was a um it was going to be a home birth but ended up a C section so but she came to you know the hospital and you know fluffed up my pillows or something and so she was probably the first person first person my son met. And um she and then I worked uh on a couple of her films just a little bit. She had our friend Vince uh score them, but um I played on them a little and I played she shot um one scene um for home, day around the corner, and so you know, I'm in that for a couple seconds or whatever, and at a party scene at that somebody's house around the corner. Um, yeah, and we, yeah, we were we were good friends and kind of family friends, and you know, uh, uh, yeah, I, uh. Then yeah, she had moved away, but yeah, it's very shocking when she passed away. Like, absolutely unexpected, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, some of the work she—I mean, all of her work—is is really impressive. But I, you know, some of the stuff that she was working on right before the end there, I feel like has really struck me. Um, and yeah, I just think it's a—it's a nice little bullet point in your career for sure that you have that collaboration in there.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, it was really from a, from a friendship, from a nice friendship. I mean, when I first met her, she had been to film school and she was like a total experimental filmmaker. Like she had been to school and studied with really, you know, out there, very abstract filmmakers and had learned, you know, been doing like optical printing and, you know, like manipulating the physical medium and that kind of thing. And she was working mostly as an editor And then we actually had this um, and then sort of working on her own stuff on the side, but mostly she was making a living as a film editor. And then we had uh, so but I totally understood that realm that she that kind of experimental filmmaking realm that she'd come from. And then she also had done a bunch of experimental theater and we actually had friends in common from from kind of that world. So. Uh, I was talking about this with my son, who's 18 and interested in film also. And I I sort of always like, um, and he's trying to figure out what to do, you know, work-wise. And uh, Lynn's sort of a great um, model for that in a way, because she, you know, dropped into feature filmmaking um, so naturally because she had so much experience as, um, first as an actor doing theater stuff, which she did in Seattle and then she did in New York a lot. And then as an editor and, you know, so she sort of like knew she she could think, you know, many steps ahead because she'd been so involved in so many parts of the process. You know, yeah. so that was kind of really gave her a leg up. You know, in terms of like knowing what was going to happen, streamlining things, um, working with people in a very sort of um, collaborative, informed, respectful way, and that kind of thing. yeah,
0: and just knowing a little bit of all facets of it probably made her feel a little bit more, uh, you know, self sustained. Even though she could be collaborative, but she was uh, maybe not as reliant as as some other filmmakers might be
1: yeah sure yeah totally yeah
0: um well that's awesome I've really enjoyed chatting about that part of it I mean I uh I just really like I I mean there's so much of her work that I haven't had a chance to dive into as well but everything that I have I really enjoy Um, yeah
1: yeah no yeah she was great yeah that was a big loss yeah
0: alum you know at this point uh, uh you've done so many different you know avenues different kind of mediums this and that is there anything in particular that you feel like you want to tackle creatively that you haven't quite been able to get your hands on yet
1: oh yeah that's a good that's a really good question um well i mean i thought a little bit about trying to do more sort of you know, visual stuff like I've been really folk so music focused, and I really like um, film. And I, I mean, I tend to be, yeah, I tend to be really um, drawn to stuff I don't really get. So I have thought a little bit about sort of like, you know, sort of film stuff and also like installation work and um you know projection and trying to sort of integrate some moving image stuff i guess i've been thinking i think about that yeah i don't know I right. might try and tackle that at some point
0: i think being in seattle like you mentioned is going to be conducive to like i mean you're, you'll have uh venues that i think would be open to whether or not you're trying to do it in a live performance way i guess is up for debate, but if you were, seems like you'd probably have places that would be a good fit for it where you're at.
1: Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a, Seattle's kind of weird because it always has this feeling like for me, it always feels like there's a disconnect between the institutions here and what's going on on the ground. Like, there's always, and I liked that about it, and I still like that about it, like just sort of organically boots on the ground there's just great stuff always like really good people working and then the like if I go to other cities uh, you know my friends can just like call the art museum and set up a show like they are there's like um a relationship between the people working at art and the administrators and sort of bureaucrats and institutional people and here it's like a it's like a wall so really that's That's surprising I know it's really weird it's always been at first I thought it was sort of charming when I when I moved here because in like if I went to like I lived in Boston before I was here and The people there were really, you know, focusing on the institutions and like how to sort of get in. And here everybody was just like, they don't give a shit about us. We're just going to do whatever we're doing, you know. And uh, that has only increased since I've lived here, which in a way is fine. But in another way, it's gotten so expensive here. It would be nice if there was actually real institution, like substantial institutional support for artists here but it's really bad it's really really bad yeah
0: i guess yeah that, I that's that's actually anything. a little shocking to hear i, I wouldn't have wouldn't have thought that
1: yeah i know it's weird yeah yeah i think it's partly just like uh classist you know uh like classist yeah so um anyway that's my experience of it but uh so I don't really have that many places to do that stuff. I mean, I could do them in like somebody's storefront gallery or something
0: like that. Well, I guess you're, um, you know, you're kind of a hop, skip and jump away from other towns that might be a little bit better about it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe, totally. maybe, yeah. maybe you're Portland's or you're, I mean, those are all getting to be expensive places too. So you oh, might find expensive. some of the same, same problems, but. Uh, I'm not
1: sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of just am. Yeah. I, like you said, I sort of like just diy world by nature it's just more fun and you can do whatever you want and it's kind of smarter i think and the people are more fun and it's just kind of more creative environment so
0: yeah I, uh, I people rail- often say it's uh one of the best things you can do for your art is like uh kind of make it not your uh your entire means to an end in terms of financially or keeping it DIY to a degree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's totally reasonable approach to take. Yeah.
0: Just, you know, uh, you don't have to worry about how something is received. If you're, uh, if the pay behind it, isn't uh, going to keep your lights on, you know?
1: Yeah. No, there's something to be said for that. I've managed to kind of work it both ways, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, I Whatever I want, but make a living at it. But you know, I'm always yeah. scared, you know? it's would such compromise for sure,
0: yeah. But I think uh, the uh, the art is benefited from it along the way, so that yeah. compromise is, is worth it,
1: yeah. That's the important thing, huh? Yeah,
0: yep. Well, I have to say that those drums you got behind you are, are gorgeous,
1: yeah. They're really nice, aren't they? I think I bought the whole drum set for 20. dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah,
0: it looks like a like an old set of Ludwigs or something. Yeah,
1: the Ludwig, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once I brought the kick drum into the uh used you know music store to get a new rim because it didn't have a um only had one head and everybody's just jaws you know dropped to the I don't I don't deserve it. It's really nice. It's really a nice kit. I have also a nice snare, but it's many many a lot of the greats have played it over here in rehearsal. Nice good
0: <laughs> drummers play it not not myself included well it's uh either somebody was just being incredibly kind with that price or they just didn't know what they had
1: uh they just like they it was in a somebody had left it in an apartment so it was sort of uh, like, <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so yeah, at that point it was just kind of Hogging up space, yeah, exactly.
1: Moment. Let's get it out of here, but it's been it's good. Use. Yeah, that one, yeah, that is that pattern is really crazy and it's pretty rare. I think it's probably a little valuable. I
0: yeah, have
1: a the only time I've ever seen it was once I watched a um Lawrence Welk show rerun and the drummer was placed.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like the um, it's kind of got that classic like Ringo pattern, but the colorway is uh is the part that looks like the most rare to me i definitely have not seen that color before
1: yeah it's kind of crazy oh huh? yeah it's pretty yeah 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 but uh yeah i'll just yeah i kind of i feel a little guilty hanging on to because like i said i don't i don't i don't deserve that drum set. <laughs> it's mine hey.
0: well you earned it you uh you found it at right, right time, right place. Yeah but, uh, yeah,
1: but it's been, yeah, it's been, it's nice. It's cool to have a drum set, though. I've always loved having one. And then at some point I've, I've had various, like um, a lot of different drummers coming over and using it. And it's really cool to hear people retune it, you know, like to understand yeah. how different drummers think about the tuning.
0: Yeah, I, I've never quite mastered it, but I feel like it, does, it can really there's an art to uh to tuning the old drums for sure
1: oh yeah it's really yeah it's amazing yeah everybody has a totally different idea about it though it's cool yeah
0: it's totally not a right and wrong but there's definitely uh,
1: yeah it's like what's your sound or feeling or some people have one friend who tunes into the room you know to like the resonant frequency of the room oh wow
0: yeah they must have a strong ear that that sounds very challenging
1: yeah, I think it's just a feel thing. Yeah. Like, oh,
0: there well, it is. Yep. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, if you don't mind, so I, I think I'll turn my camera here and just snag a, a quick photo of the two of us. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, thanks a ton for coming on and chatting with me. And uh, we'll probably get this cut up and, you know, out there in the world before long. But uh. Yeah, right. I'm really excited to, to keep listening to your solo work and everything you got coming up. And just, yeah, thanks so much for spending some time with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. All right, have a good one. Thanks, you too.
0: Bye. Bye. This has been a Comfort Monk production.